right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Fearcast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and uh, phobias, all basically anything else that you could be afraid of. Um, it's uh, uh, dedicated to those things, treatment, and how to get your life back. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Foss. I'm a licensed clinician, and uh, I specialize in the treatment of those things, uh, OCD and anxiety specifically. So thank you all for joining me today for this episode. Um, this is a big deal. We crossed the two-year mark, everybody. Can you imagine? I have been doing this for two years. Y'all have been listening to my yammering on about OCD and anxiety treatment for two years. It has been a, a, a it's been a long time. And it's been a very short time. So um, the, uh, the the podcast as a uh, the, the podcast overall, by the way, I should say for all of you new listeners out there is a question and answer based podcast. So if you have questions about treatment, about an OCD, about particular subtypes of OCD, about anxiety in general treatment, what does CBT look like, how do you treat phobias, that sort of stuff, um, that's what this podcast is all about. Um, so you can, if you have a question for me to uh, answer on a future episode, you can go to fearcastpodcast.com and you can go over to the ask a question link there and you can put in your question. I will read it and I will likely answer it on a future episode. Um, that's the foundation of pretty much every uh, past episode. Um, however, this episode is going to be slightly different. This episode is going to be an interview with a uh, with a lovely uh, colleague of mine named Elena Fasan. So this episode will not have any questions or, uh, or or answers from any or questions from listeners, answers from me. Instead, I I had the 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 privilege of having Elena on my podcast or on this podcast here um, to talk about her expertise, uh, which is child and adolescent OCD treatment. So I'll, I'll apologize in advance. This is easily the longest episode of the Fearcast we've ever put out. So I'm going to make this intro bit very, very short, uh, at least as short as I possibly can. Throughout the episode, she mentioned a number of resources and references in terms of books and in terms of other uh, things that uh, you all out there can uh, uh, reference or, or utilize uh, in this process. You don't need to immediately write it all down if you're listening to this while hiking or at the gym or while driving. Don't put yourself in any danger. Uh, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. This is going to be episode 48. You can go to that episode page and um, uh, I'll put as, as many of them as we can or as I can or as we remembered that we talked about um, on that page so you can reference those um, at your leisure. I'll say this in advance as well. If you have questions that were sparked from this uh, conversation that, that I had with Elena, and you'd like some specific questions about treatment for childhood and uh, uh, adolescent um, anxiety or OCD, feel free to message me. Go to go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go over to the Ask a Question link, and uh, uh, ask me a question. I'm more than happy to have her on as a follow-up guest uh, to talk more specifically about some of these things, uh, since I know there's um, there, there are some resources out there there aren't a ton of resources out there though for um for parents specifically on uh, on how to help their child how to help themselves through this process so all right without much more ado let me first tell you about elena and then we'll get into the episode so elena fasan is a licensed clinical social worker lcsw and she has worked with the ocd center of los angeles since january of 2016 prior to joining the ocdla staff she worked as a therapist at ucla's child and adolescent ocd intensive outpatient treatment program 
In addition to being on staff with the OCD Center of Los Angeles, Elena is a faculty member at the California State University's Child and Adolescent Development Department as an adjunct professor and has been doing so since 2017. Additionally, with CSUN, she has developed a survey course on adolescent development. Elena, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast of the Fearcast, I should say. So um, you're going to join me today. You put together this big, giant, fantastic list of ten things parents of children and adolescents with OCD should know. So yes, uh, I did. All right, so we're going to kind of just go through this list and chat a little bit about what are some of the things that parents of children with uh, adolescents or children and adolescents with OCD should know. Yes. So, so, go ahead. Number one. Yes. Should we start with number one? What do you think? I think it's a good place to start. Okay. Um, number one is educate yourself about OCD. So, there's a lot of information about OCD, and there's a lot of misinformation about OCD. So, you want to seek information from reliable sources. And, you know, the IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation, is a great source. Um. I would say any university that does research on OCD usually is a good source. Um, UCLA, University of Florida, Duke University, Yale, those are some of the major institutions that research child and adolescent OCD. Um, there's also some really great books. There is specifically for children and adolescents, there's an author named Tamar Chansky. Mm -hmm. And she wrote a book called Freeing Your Child from OCD, mm -hmm. um, the OCD stories. Um, so educate yourself. And then I think it's really important too to re recognize your own bias and just the bias out there about OCD. There's a stigma, there's bias, there's a lot of um, misrepresentation. I mean, have you noticed that people say a lot, oh, I'm so OCD? Absolutely. All the time, All right? the time. All the time. And we get that when we tell people what we do for a living. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, they don't really have OCD. They just kind of throw that out there. It's like saying, I'm so... I'm so neat. You yeah. know? I, I, when someone tries to throw that one out there on various forums or whatever, I'd say, you're particular. You like right. things the way that you like things. Right. 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 So I think it's really important to find reliable sources and to educate yourself about it because then it's not so scary, right? And it's important also, I think, to understand that it is a medical condition, mm -hmm. right? The diagnostic criteria is set by medical doctors, psychiatrists, and it has to do with a part of your body, the brain, an organ in your body. So a lot of people don't view it as a medical condition because it's, has to do with thoughts and feelings and sensations. But do you experience this? Because I do all the time where you go through the assessment tools or somebody is describing something and you can name exactly what their feared consequences. And they are like, Oh my goodness, how did you know? Because that's a clear cut diagnostic part of the diagnostic criteria. That's a symptom just like any other medical condition. So that's step one. So it's kind of predictable in that sense. It's it's um, we, yes. we can anticipate that there's going to be there, that we're going to see these patterns of unwanted intrusive thoughts, and uh, that's going to spark a yes. whole lot of uh, anxiety. Um, but you know, and and perhaps we're 
we're, we're jumping to it uh, a little bit, but for children, there's going to be not just anxiety the way that you and I see it, but yes. it might also manifest as anger, it might manifest as isolation, things like that. But um, absolutely, good point. But I, I, I really love the idea of yes, addressing your your own biases and uh, kind of being aware that we we do have these assumptions of what OCD is and what OCD isn't, and a right. lot of that is going to be based on the portrayals of OCD we see in the media. Um, yes, I, a, I was just going to say that monk. Yes, as good as it gets. Right. Where if you are somebody who has OCD or has knowledge of OCD or an OCD specialist, you turn that off because you're like, okay, they established the symptom and then they did something that totally goes against that, right? Right. So it's not accurate. It's it's. I'm sure it's the same way if you're a medical doctor and you're watching a medical show, you're like, well, that would never happen, you know? So, yeah, I think that that's really important. And also what you said about the way it manifests in children, I think is really important because another thing that we see in children far more than adults are more somatic symptoms, which means they're more physical symptoms of anxiety and also often less insight. Their insight is not as good as adults. What does insight generally mean? speaking? E expand on what insight means. Awareness that these thoughts are irrational. Awareness that the compulsions, the behaviors engaged in in order to reduce the discomfort, the anxiety caused by the thoughts, feelings, and sensations are not necessary. Right. So kids may have a lot more magical thinking, which means, you know, basically like this could never happen in reality. Mm -hmm. Right. I see a lot of kids with um, almost regular kid-like fears, fear of the dark, but expanded much bigger. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids I treat are worried about intruders. They're checking in their you know bathroom shower every night. They're checking behind doors. They're checking out the window to make sure there's not intruders. It's kind of a normative childhood fear. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they become outsized, but you see a lot of somatic symptoms. Also, definitely, it's, it's a good segue because it leads me into my next point. Kids with OCD have OCD tantrums, even adolescents. It's pretty unusual for me to see a kid with OCD who does not, or adolescent even, who does not rage, freak out, cry in response to anxiety. Now, here's the distinction. Sometimes people think, oh, my kid is just being oppositional and defiant. The distinction is that an oppositional and or defiant kid is not going to have any remorse. They're not going to feel bad afterwards. A kid with OCD usually feels bad afterwards. You see this behavioral and kind of personality profile. People with OCD in general tend to be, you know, perfectionistic, low distress tolerance, overachieving. These are kids who are rule followers. These are kids who other parents want their kids to hang out with. They tend to be pretty intelligent. They tend to be doing a lot of extracurricular activities. It's one of the reasons why OCD is often not pegged until it's really impacting their function because kids with OCD, unlike kids with ADHD or mm -hmm. um, learning differences or ODD, with the, which is oppositional defiant disorder, their functioning is really impacted across multiple contexts. Kids with OCD could even be 
having severe symptoms and they're still getting straight A's and they're still performing highly on their athletic team. And they're getting praised for all the things that they're doing. They're being told they're great. They're responsible. They're kind. They're thoughtful. They're smart. They're hardworking. Right. Right. That's such a good point. Their perfectionism gets praised in academic and performing arts athletic settings. I should also specify here, I, 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 I'm just going to cut in and add, this This isn't the case for every child with OCD. They're certainly going to get... Absolutely. It's, it's kind of like, um, back to that uh, kind of the bias point, um, you know, we have the assumption that, that folks with OCD are really clean and organized and neat, mm-hmm. and that is not the case uh, no. across the board. Yes, there are some folks who are are concerned about cleanliness and order and uh, precision stuff like that, but it's it, it's not a, a one size fits all. We're, we're as as we're talking, we're kind of talking in, in broad generalities of some Absolutely. things and commonalities that we'll see. Um, I just yes. I, I anticipate that there's a parent out there listening to this going, but my kids not those things. They're getting D's in their classes, right? Exactly. Right? So it's so it's not all. It's it, it's some, but there are some kind of commonalities that we can see. Yes. And to your point about the orderly neat, you know, again, that has to do with the bias. We think of hand washers and checkers, right? That's OCD. I cannot tell you how often I talk to parents who are up in arms that their kid's room is a mess. Their kid with OCD or their adolescent, particularly adolescents, they just need to get their room clean. And I always say, "Mm, I think you have other battles to fight. Sometimes people who have need for symmetry, they want things to be very orderly or they have contamination fears, will avoid. And that's why their rooms are messy. But more often than not, it's just a way for a kid or adolescent to get autonomy. Mm -hmm. And I say, choose your battles. Shut the door if it bothers you. They'll figure it out. They'll figure it out. Well, but what if, and then they'll say, but what about when they go to college and they have a roommate? Yeah, there'll be a natural consequence. They'll figure it out. I think Mm -hmm. you have more things to worry about than messy room. Mm -hmm. Again, there might be parents out there that are thinking, but it's a sign of their responsibility and it's a sign of being a good human. And I'm like, yeah, in the common areas, yeah, they should be expected to pick up after themselves. But if you're dealing with a kid who symptoms, what I always say is OCD hijacks the family system. So there's, if there's, symptoms are impacting your entire family system, which they likely are to some degree, let's choose your battles and stop nagging them about their room. They'll figure it out. Unless it's very directly related to a compulsion or avoidance, Mm -hmm. which is a compulsion. And then I will help them work on that in a graduated way. So in terms of one way to kind of, you know, help your child, my second point is, to depersonalize. Depersonalize from it yourself, depersonalize your child from it. What I mean by that is separate their OCD from their identity. From them. They are not their OCD, right? Right. right. I think it's really important. So the simplest way to do that is to name it. Mm. Call it out. That's OCD. So Teach the kid to name it. So n- name it like for them to be able to say, oh, that's my OCD. Yes, but also I encourage kids to give it a name. I personally call OCD a bully. Okay. Because it's very much like a bully, mm-hmm. right? It tells you to do these things that it makes you upset. It says mean things about you. Mm-hmm. It, it, it leads you to do things you don't want to do, like give them your lunch money, which is a very old school way of thinking of a bully. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> um, and the response to a bully in OCD 
is kind of, oh no, the bully's right. I have to do what the bully's telling me to do or go away, bully, go away, bully, go away, leave me alone. Mm -hmm. But a much better way to deal with the bully is to just go, okay, thanks. Or to even agree with the bully. If a bully is saying to you, you're really ugly. If you say to the bully, yeah, I'm so ugly. I have to wear a bag over my head when when I'm eating dinner with my family because they can't look at me. Bully's got nothing. Mm. And those are kind of approaches you can take. But as far as naming it, you can give it a name and kids come up with the best names. I have heard some some amazing names. Oh my goodness. I had one kid call it the control worm. I like it. That was amazing. I like it. Um, Another kid who said the lying liar that lies. And I'm saying that instead of who, because it doesn't deserve to be a person. Sometimes they'll just give it an actual name. Very abstract. I like that one. Yeah, I know. Larry, Greg, I've heard those. Mm -hmm. Um, Mr. Weeds. I'd someone just, call it Elmo once. Elmo, it was Elmo. yes. Yes, yes. It, tr- it, it evolved into Helmo at some point. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Makes that sense. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah so so they, that's a way for them to separate themselves, right? Yeah, because they, they, aren't, they aren't their OCD. They are experiencing exactly. it. They're feeling it. They are uh, affected by it. But they aren't it. Yes. I, I, you can kind of envision it like, um, you know, it's, it, it gives you this, it gives you a common enemy because then it's yes. not your parents and your parents against you. It's you and your parents are on the same team. You and your entire family exactly. are on the same team against this common foe, which is right. the, the, the bully or the worm. What was the, William? the control worm? The control worm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's us against this thing. Right. That's this invisible creature. Yeah, right. I like this. Right. And an important point is that naming is not labeling. Occasionally, I talk to parents who say, you know, I really would prefer that you not call it OCD because I don't want my kid to feel labeled. And then my question is, okay, if you went to the pediatrician and your child was diagnosed with asthma or diabetes, would you ask the pediatrician to not label, give them that label? And the parents look at me like, of course, of course we would tell them to name it right it's the insulin monster yes exactly exactly it's the pancreatic pancreatic you know dysfunction monster you know right Right. so (laughs) when you put it in that context and you remind them it's a medical condition they're buying into that societal stigma but what i always say is that naming is not labeling and naming is empowering once we name something we can we have this enemy. We, we know what our enemy is and right. they can separate your child from you because it has to, or from the OCD, not from you, mm-hmm. from the OCD. Right. Because, you know, we kids, anyone with OCD personalize it because it does have to do with thoughts, feelings, sensations. It's not like bad eyesight or asthma or diabetes where it's very clear cut. It feels like it's you because it's in your mind. Right. And another thing about naming, so in both ways, giving it a name, but also naming it for them and having them call it out. That's my OCD, which builds awareness, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of what we talked about before, about the tantruming, it also gives parents an opportunity if their kid is having a strong emotional and or behavioral response to their symptoms to call it out. And what I tell parents is that thoughts and feelings are not always a choice, but behavioral responses are a choice. 
right? So even if your kid is feeling really anxious and freaked out, they still have a choice of how they respond to that behavior. And they can learn not to respond to it by tantruming and screaming and slamming doors and, you know, dissolving into a ball of tears. They can learn to respond to it differently and you can learn to respond to it differently. A lot of times I remind parents of what they did when their kids were toddlers and they were tantruming. And I say, look, they're in their fear brain. They're in their amygdala. You have to treat them at that moment, not treat them like a toddler, but think of them like that. When their children were toddlers, they did a pretty good job of a tantruming toddlers in front of them. They mm. probably didn't try to reason with that child. They probably didn't try to explain to that child. Mm-hmm. They probably just set a firm boundary and said, you need to go into timeout. You need to calm down. I'll talk to you when you're calm down. But when they get older, parents will try to reason with the child and explain to them and bet, plead with them. And really what they're doing in that moment is they're engaging with OCD. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really important for parents to understand that concept that they may not have a choice about their thoughts and feelings, but they do have a choice about how they respond to it. I think that that example of the the, the toddler is 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 very um uh, on on the nose for for me mm-hmm. uh, since my kiddo just turned two as did then this podcast I think the first episode released like the day oh, wow. before I probably had it go live as my wife was in labor it's a long conversation but wow um, <laughs> it was a it was a weird day we're not gonna get into that but okay. yes when when my little weirdo is having a a, a wild tantrum you know hey we're gonna turn off the TV and she just leans right. over and just starts crying. It's, I, I, you know, having a conversation with her about, you know, we can only limit the screen time to X amount of time and we're probably going to watch something again. And, you know, right. r- really is, you know, they're what they're you, you live in a you, you live in America. And, you know, we if you were in a third world country, blah, 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 blah if that's gonna right. be useless. But I can acknowledge that she's frustrated. I can acknowledge the right. emotional condition that she is in and say, oh, my exactly. gosh, you're so frustrated and you're so sad. And so this is, and this feels so bad. And right. instead you of name yelling, it. Yeah. And, and instead of, yeah. instead of yelling at her to say that she's wrong, it's, I bring her in and say, this must be so hard for you. I don't exactly. say she's right for being upset right. or that she ought to be, but that right. she's feeling something. I think that we can do that with kids and adolescents with OCD is that they are in pain they are feeling something intensely but we don't have to then say yes that thing does need to be washed 75 times or we need to put it in just that order or else right right we can agree with yes absolutely sorry i interrupted you what were you saying (laughs) i was gonna say just that 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 we can that we can be compassionate towards the feeling without then um getting on board with the thought Exactly. Yes. And you made a really good point, which is it's not just about naming OCD. It's naming the emotions. Mm -hmm. It must be so frustrating to have these thoughts and feelings right now. I can see how overwhelmed you are. I can see that you feel really angry that I won't allow you to do this compulsion right now. Right. Right. And that brings us to accommodation, which means accommodating to the symptoms. So allowing the symptoms to happen, allowing the compulsions rather to happen, because you can't always control the, the thoughts and the feelings, but you can control compulsions. Now, one thing about that, though, is 
sometimes when parents learn that accommodation is bad, they try to remove all accommodation. I'm not going to let my kid do any of these behaviors. Mm -hmm. And that's not really a good idea because humans don't do very well when we take away a coping mechanism without putting other ones in place, Mm -hmm. right? And we'll talk later about what those coping mechanisms are in terms of therapy. Mm -hmm. But just because accommodation is bad and not really helpful and keeps your kid or adolescent in the OCD cycle doesn't mean you pull the rug out from under them when they don't have other tools yet. Tools and skills, exactly. And so one thing that I've learned is that a lot of kids and adolescents do engage in OCD tantrums, engage in, you know, behaviors that are not great in response to OCD. One thing I've learned is that when I meet with parents who are very authoritative, and I'm going to explain what that means, I don't see the same degree of tantruming and behavioral problems. Also, most kids with and adolescents with OCD are able to control those not behave poorly, not respond with OCD tantrums in contexts outside the home. So their teachers would say, I would never guess that they do that mm. or friends, parents, or even other relatives. Right. So that is a good key for parents that a, they feel so comfortable with you that they're not afraid to fall apart. That's a good thing. That's a secure attachment. And B, they actually can control it. They can control their behavior. So what, what do I mean by authoritative parenting? What comes up for you when I say that Kevin authoritative parenting? Uh, well, it sounds, it sounds scary. It does it. Yeah, it, it does. Uh, and now the, I mean, the, the, the problem is I also know the difference between authoritative and authoritarian. Exactly. But they sound so very glad. similar. They do. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that's, that's why it's scary because people don't understand the difference generally. I've had psychology classes. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you may understand the difference. You probably do. But, but the authoritative, I, I think, um, yes, when, like, if, you, if I hear authoritative parenting, if I didn't know what that meant, I mean, it, it sounds scary. It scary. sounds like the boot is down. It sounds strong. Yes. Um, but, yes. but what, but what is it actually? If you, if you could explain it in kind of some really simple terms, what, what, what would authoritative parenting look like? So, When we think of child development, we think of two dimensions that create parenting style. Those two dimensions are responsiveness and demandingness. Demandingness sounds kind of scary, too. It sounds like I'm being demanding. Let me explain those terms. Mm -hmm. Responsiveness just means nurturing, loving, supportive, respectful, responsive to your child. Demandingness means having high expectations for behavior. Right. So we look at parenting style across those four dimensions. Authoritative parenting is the only parenting style that has high levels of both responsiveness and demandingness. The basic principle is kind, but firm. Mm -hmm. Authoritarian has very high levels of demandingness, low levels of responsiveness. The basic principle of authoritarian parenting is my way or the highway. That's the phrase that was coming up in my head right now. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, you know, my way and that's the way we're doing it. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. It might be useful also to briefly mention the other two parenting styles. Mm-hmm. 
So if you have high levels of responsiveness and low levels of demandingness, that is called indulgent or permissive parenting. Mm. That's kind of like, I want to be your friend. Right. I'm going to do whatever you want because I want to be your friend. If you have low levels of both responsiveness and demandingness, that is neglectful or indifferent. Then that kind of is just like, I don't really care what you do. I'm not paying attention anyways. You're on your own, kid. Right. Right. Whatever. Do it yourself. So the thing about authoritative parenting is that we have a very, very robust body of decades of research that shows that across childhood, across adolescence, into adulthood, across all kinds of different contexts, authoritative parenting is the most effective parenting style, bar none. Those kids have the best behavior. They have higher levels of self-esteem. They have lower levels of anxiety. They have higher levels of achievement. They have stronger identity. It is just bar none the most effective parenting style. Now, when you have a kid who has OCD or an adolescent and your family system has been hijacked by OCD, you may not be an authoritative parent. It's hard not to fall into one of the others. Well, I'm just going to be indulgent and, and just give in and not have expectations for their behavior because it's too hard for them right now. Or I'm going to scream at them to stop authoritarian, mm -hmm. stop doing what they're doing. So I often have to bring parents back to what are some basic principles of authoritative parenting, verbal give and take. Right, listening to what they have to say, taking their their um, thoughts and feelings and values, wants and needs into consideration. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't then say, you know, I'm not going to let you do that. It's not safe. It's not appropriate for your age. But you listen to what they have to say first. Right. Um, high expectations, but very supportive, very loving, very respectful. Um, there's a, a parenting approach called nonviolent parenting, which is, of course, you don't abuse your child, but it's also nonviolent parenting indicates you treat your child, your adolescent with respect. You talk to them as you would an adult. You use kid language that's appropriate, but you don't infanticize them. You don't baby them. You treat them with the same respect that you would treat any human. Yeah, and, 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 and age-appropriate interaction. Age-appropriate. Now, the good thing about this is that authoritative parenting is a learned skill. The reason why I know about authoritative parenting is because I, in another lifetime, was a performing artist. And I fell into nannying. And it was a lot better than food service. So... As the daughter of professors, I decided I need to learn as much as I can about this parenting thing because I got thrown into taking care of small children and was like, whoa, this mm. is really, really hard. This is testing my patience. The benefit of learning to parent when they're not your child and when you're being paid for it is guess what? If I freak out on this kid when they're driving me crazy, I'm going to lose my job. I can't. High right? consequence. Yes. Exactly. Right. So it's a learnable skill. A I'm sorry. And you what? are not going to be a barista. Yeah. No. Pass. No. Being a nanny was was much better than being a barista. That was your jam. <laughs> yes, it was my jam, and it led me to this work because I spent 17 years working with families in nannying, and I learned on the job 
how to be an authoritative parent. That's another point, right? You learn as a parent on the job. Most parents, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and, and you're going to get better. This is probably the point that you're going to make is that it's, we're, we're going to start out by sucking at it, like everything mm-hmm. else. And we're going to learn skills, we're going to implement something, and it's going to blow up in our face and it's not going to work right. But we're going to keep trying and we're going to fine tune that and find different ways that we can incorporate some of those skills that you're talking about, the kind but firm, because sometimes we'll be too kind I mean, right. it sounds weird to say, but maybe we'll say it's too too soft. Um, right. And then sometimes we'll be way too firm and it's not going to work well. And we right. find out what's going to work for us and also work for right. the relationship with your child because there's also that component. They are their yes. own person with their own opinions and desires and interests and responsiveness. Yeah. And then there's another child development concept that comes into this, which is called goodness of fit, which just means how well your personality, your temperament, your activity level fits with your child's. And there's not always great goodness of fit, right? Sometimes there's poor goodness of fit. I know that's kind of a strange way to put it, but that's how we speak about it in developmental terms. So, and also the other thing is that you have to parent different children differently. You have to discipline different children differently. But The thing about authoritative parenting that will make the parents out there listening feel very hopeful is that it is a learned skill. Most parents, they read a lot when you're preparing to have a baby, you read about what to expect when you're expecting, what to expect about pregnancy, what to expect about a newborn, how to take care of a baby. But then they just kind of stop with that. And there's no handbook given out. When you are at the hospital, they don't say, okay, here's your handbook, discover your parenting style. You're learning on the job and you suddenly discover, wait, we naturally have different styles of parenting. We have Mm -hmm. disagreements and Mm -hmm. you're learning that on the job. So authoritative parenting is a learned skill. There's amazing books out there that I learned so much from. I learned from the parents I worked for. Um, You can take parenting classes. Most parenting classes embrace authoritative parenting principles. Um, Would you like to know what some of my favorite parenting books are? Would that be useful? How did you know what my next question was going to be? And before you even tell me, I'll say for anybody listening to this, for any references that that Elena throws out, um, I'm going to put links to those or the names of those on the show notes to this episode. And this is going to be episode 48. So you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com and check out uh, the the show page for that. You'll see a whole gaggle of, of, of books and references and resources that you can use. So yes, well, uh, just very briefly, what are give me a couple of books that you, you might find helpful in, in reference to authoritative parenting. I love Positive Discipline by Jane Nelson. Mm-hmm. I love the series of books by Adele Faber and Elaine Maslich, uh, How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk, Siblings Without Rivalry. Um, there's one about learning, and I don't remember. It's How to Talk So Kids Will Learn, I think, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Don't quote me. I love Parenting from the Inside Out and The Whole Brain Child by Daniel Siegel. Those are all Excellent books. Oh, and one more, Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Kohn or Kahn. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. Sorry, Alfie. I don't know. They're and listening. They're listening. They, 
I know that Alfie Cohn or Con, whichever it is, has um, videos online and it's very much that authoritative, kind, but firm approach. There's also some basic tools. So I have a parent in the office or both parents with their kid who's been diagnosed with OCD or their adolescent. And they're describing outrageous behavior that happened in response to OCD symptoms and the parents feel paralyzed. And I say, well, what were the consequences of that behavior? Parents say, well, there weren't any, it was OCD. And I said, well, the thoughts and feelings were OCD, but the behavior was a response to it. Mm. So we want to make clear, we don't want to apply consequences. And I'm a fan of consequences rather than punishment. Mm. We don't want to apply consequences for thoughts and feelings, but it's reasonable to apply consequences for behaving negatively in response to those. So I always encourage parents to start with family rules mm-hmm. and base those family rules on fam- on shared family values. So just have a few family rules. You guys come up with it as a family and you come up with consequences as a family. Mm-hmm. And by the way, all family members have to fam- follow the family rules. Right. So if the family rule is... Um, we communicate respectfully. What does that look like? Mm -hmm. We don't yell at each other. We don't name call. And that means that we're going to come up with a consequence that's directly tied to it. So if you behave that way, perhaps then you need to write a letter explaining your behavior and apologize and read it aloud to the other family member. And that's parents as well. And kids love it when the parents are subject to the consequences as well. And often when you have the children and adolescents come up with the consequences with you, they will come up with harsher consequences than, than um, you, the parent would themselves. So that's really helpful. I also encourage parents to, with older children to view uh, devices as a privilege not a right. Mm. So I can't tell you how often I hear, well, they're not sleeping at night because they're on their phone. Well, why is their phone in their room? Mm-hmm. Right? That's a privilege. It's not a right that they have that phone or they have other media. Um, if I have parents say, well, they need their phone when they're doing their homework because what if they have to call their, their classmate? He said, well, they can come out to the kitchen and get the phone. Right. Sometimes there, kids there was a time just, way back in the day when there was right. there was the phone that was in the middle of the house or the living yes. room, and with it with a cord like a spirally cord that I that was your limitation. Days. Do you remember those times? Yes, and the really cool kids might have had a private line in their room. Mm. Right. I mean, the, we didn't even have call waiting. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so it's, it, it's, it, it is possible to survive and have a life where they can call and they can contact and they can be interactive in, in, while still, while approaching the family, while approaching the, you, the parent, and trying to get that, that phone for that five, 10 minute call. Exactly. And use it as leverage. So maybe not as a consequence, but maybe as a privilege, right? You behave a certain way. And you're going to earn a little bit more media time or you're going to earn some time on your phone, right? So I think it's because parents view their cell phones and media as a right rather right. than a privilege, right? Right. And, and to the parents out there who are saying, well, I've tried this with my kid and it just simply didn't work, uh, that, that's fine. None of the tools that we're talking about here are going to be magic. None of the books that Elena mentioned no. are going to be completely magic that if you read this, it fixes your kid. It's that these are, these are one of, this is one of the things that you can try. If it doesn't work, that's fine. We'll fine tune it and we'll right. do something different 
And right. we, we, the success is being tenacious and keep trying rather than just saying, well, they're on their own and right. I just can't deal with this kid. And just remember what it was like again when your kid was a toddler and you were trying to sleep train them or, you know, wean them off their pacifier. You just kept trying. You didn't get out or teaching them to tie their shoes or brush their teeth or toilet, toilet to- potty training. Right. Mm-hmm. You didn't just give up. Well, okay. They couldn't, they couldn't do it. Right. You kept trying. Kept That's trying. a really good point. Right. So another thing I think is really important is to find ways to strengthen your family system. So this is point four to, to, point to four. stay on track. Yes. everybody. Yeah. So point three was about authoritative parenting. Thank you, Kevin. Warning to everybody. This is I, I, I'm realizing now, and Elena, you and I talked about this. This is going to be a very long episode. So buckle up, everybody. We're on point four of ten. We're starting. I'll, I'll keep. I'll, I'll try to not be so verbose. This you know, I love too? this subject. You know, I do. I know. I'm. I do a poor job at reining people in. And you're, you're, this is fantastic information, and I want this information out there. Rain so. me in, Kevin. Rain me in. <sighs> There's no controlling you. Everyone knows this. So, <laughs> all right. Let's buckle up. Point four. Strengthen the family system. Go. Strengthen your family system. That means effective co-parenting. Work together. If you're going to have a disagreement about how to parent, don't have it in front of your kids. They will divide and conquer you. Do not do that. Talk about it separately later, Right. Engage in shared family activities, right? And, you know, that's really, really important, especially with older kids who aren't going to want to do it. It's normal for adolescents to want to individuate and to want to be hang out with their peers. But if you build the habit early on of we have family meals together with no devices, right? There are no phones at the dinner table. As a nanny, you know, I still have a relationship with the kids I used to nanny and they know if they're in my car and they get on their phones, they get confiscated. Guess what? We could actually talk. What? We could have a conversation in the car. What? Yes. All right. Yes. So it's strong boundaries, right? Which is another fam- is another principle of uh, authoritative parenting. Right. If you if you have to stick with it, right. you know. I've done that enough that. The kids I used to nanny um, who are now 18 and 13, if I'm eating with them or I'm in the car with them, they just don't really try anymore. They know I will take their phone, hand me the phone. And that, that actually speaks to your point, your previous point about expectations. That this is mm-hmm. the this is the thing that we're that we are going to do, and it's it's this it's this policy that that we as a family are, are just going to have, and uh, of course sometimes we have to break those break those rules. But yes. if we start to anticipate that this is just what we, do, I mean, when right. we go on a flight, we all expect we're taking our shoes off at some point. The the vast majority of us are not getting up in arms about that. Yes, there are some weirdos out there. Um, or we can talk about masks right now. Do you want to talk about that? Um, okay, we not. All right, that's fine. But this is it's, it's the expectation. This is what we do, and it's also this is fun stuff. It's not just a pain in the butt stuff. Like you know, this is the stuff you're not gonna do. It's hey everybody, we as a family right. are gonna have game night. We as a family right. get to do movie night. Yes, and absolutely. And you get to choose what what snack we're going to have and what treat we're going to have and what movie we're going to have. And we're all going to do this so that we all want to do it. It's not right. going to be mom and dad get to decide and kids just have to suck it up or kids are going to decide what we're going to watch and parents have no input. It's we as a family right. 
people, we as a family are going to decide because we are all in this boat together. Yes. This is our system. And by the way, just really quick. Okay. I didn't say, let's not talk about masks because I am anti-mask. Please wear masks, people. Uh, just, Just so people know, it was just, I didn't want to go down a long track with that. And if you are all um, listening in the future, and if science has proven that actually masks were unnecessary and we were all mm. idiots, we are sorry. We are a product of our time. Here we are making right. mistakes. Follow the science is our point. Right. And right. All right. <laughs> yes, thank you. Mo- so on. another thing to do to strengthen your family system, your system, your system you is there. to use humor as a coping mechanism. Have some fun together. Make fun of each other. Make fun of OCD. You make fun of a bully and it runs screaming. Have fun. Now, that doesn't really work when the symptoms are severe and the kid or adolescent is extremely anxious. But there might be little moments where you can be sarcastic with OCD or make fun of it. But I think humor is a very powerful coping mechanism. So find ways to have fun together. Find ways to find humor in your day-to-day life. All of those things can really strengthen your family system. And I love what you said about having these shared rituals, movie night, game night, family meals. I think those are all really important. The the one thing that I'll tack on to this, and I I know this is my fault for taking this one long, um, but also I'll I'll say for the parents to strengthen that system. So the parental bond um, and and finding days or finding ways to connect either with date night. Absolutely. I I know that not everybody can do date night or or things of that nature, but maybe it's it's date night at night once the kids go to sleep and there's the policy of we're not going to talk about, I, I know this is going to kind of go against what we previously just mentioned, but we're not going to talk about OCD. We're not going to talk about our kid. We're not going to talk about work. We're going to take a break from it. Yeah. Remember when you were on those dates and you talked about fun stuff and other movies that you saw and memories and things like that. Right. It's, we're going to try to do those things because what we don't want, and I, I think I used to see this when I worked with kids with autism, is that the relationship between mom and dad turned into a relationship with them discussing how they're going to do floor time yes. better, or how they're going to address and what doctors they're going to see, and and autism itself. OCD can turn into this monster too. Is that Absolutely. it's that that you two need to be this united front, um, yes. and uh, and if it's not you two, if it's a single parent, it's you and some other friend, or it's you and your right. friend group. It's needing needing some of that um, disconnection from the. And, and this yes. is I'm gonna get emails about this. Perhaps it's disconnection from the quote problem, right? Taking a break from it, yes, and getting back to what led you to create a family together in the first place, right? Right, and you see it all the time. I mean, I hear parents who are saying we're we're arguing with each other because we're so frustrated and we can't take it out on our kids so we're taking it out on each other right you know right because it hijacks your system it impacts the whole family the symptoms are really difficult to deal with so thank you for that because that's an absolutely wonderful point and it leads me to point five Uh, mm -hmm. point five (laughs) which is seek support as you said if you're a single parent or even if you're not a single parent ask for help there is, there should be no shame in your child having this, we can call it a disability, we can call it a medical condition, right? If your child had, God forbid, cancer or another difficult medical issue, you would have no problem reaching out to support. 
talk to your friends and family members. Take care of yourself in that way. If you need therapy, seek therapy. If you recognize, wait, I have anxiety too, seek help for your anxiety. If you're having problems in your marriage, get couples therapy. If the whole family system is having problems, seek family therapy. In terms of specifically support for OCD, you can find online and in-person support groups specifically for being a parent of a child with OCD, right? So don't be afraid to seek support and don't be afraid to support yourself. And that means self-care. I I was taught that self-care is like a three-legged stool and that the three legs are exercise, sleep, and diet right? And if one of those is not being taken care of, then your stool is not going to be very steady. You can add to that. You can make the stool pretty by adding, you know, mindfulness and hobbies, hobbies and nurturing yourself. Right. But I always use the metaphor of the airplane where you put your oxygen mask on before you put the mask on your child. Because if you're not doing well and you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be able to save your child. Right. Right. I, I, and I, I hear this um, from folks where they say, but that's so selfish. I mm-hmm. say, and I say, it is. It is selfish because there's such a thing as appropriate selfishness. Right. We do that is not a real term. I made up that term, but it's it's a there's appropriate selfishness. We need to be able to take care of our self because right. very few people are going to intentionally do that for us. We we right. need to be the we need to be the person who's going to take care of ourselves so that we can do this other stuff that's also very very good and selfless. Parent yourself. Self-care is not selfishness. Self-care is, you know, giving giving yourself the space and the time so that you are able to be there for your kids. I've told mothers of children and adolescents with OCD who are at home with them all day and are the main caretaker, hey, why don't you go get a hotel for a night and get a full night's sleep? The kid is waking up in the middle of the night doing compulsions. They're not sleeping. The child is in their bed. What you sometimes see is that Children and adolescents with OCD may be ahead of the game developmentally in terms of their conscientiousness and their academic performance, but they're still sleeping in mom and dad's bed past the time when it's appropriate. They're still tantruming. And sometimes mothers, and it can be dads too, I don't want to leave dads out, respond to that with, but that would be so selfish. And I said, well, I think if you get a full night's sleep, you're going to be better prepared to be there for your child. Right. Yeah. So that's really important. So as now, we, let's oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go. Are, are you still going to be on on point five? Because I was jumping into point six. Oh, were make you? it happen. Make it happen. Wow, we are we're we're on the same wavelength here. So I don't want to forget about siblings, right? So support siblings too, right? So I think it's important. What happens sometimes when OCD is hijacking the family system is that siblings get forgotten. The siblings without OCD get forgotten. I think it's important for parents to pay attention to the roles siblings may play in response to their siblings' OCD. So some some siblings will try to help their, their sibling with the OCD. Some will become, you know, the perfect child so that they're not any trouble. Some will get very angry. Some will isolate and disconnect. There's all kinds of different roles that siblings may play. Mm-hmm. Sometimes siblings get 
are the focus of OCD symptoms, which is really difficult. There may be emotional contamination or actual contamination, fears surrounding a sibling. There may be a sibling who is doing a behavior, the subnatural behavior that is triggering um, to the child or adolescent with OCD. So pay attention to the roles Make sure that they're not overly involved in their siblings' OCD symptoms. So I'm the parent. You don't have to help manage your sibling. Let me do that. Back off. And help manage their relationship to one another. So as you strengthen your family system, pay attention to how you can strengthen you know, the sibling's relationship because it can really impact sibling relationships. Mm-hmm. It's important to educate siblings about OCD as you educate yourself. And I think it's really important to make sure that the siblings needs are being met. I think it's natural in a family system when a child has a disabling condition for a lot of the time, energy and attention to be focused on that child. So you have to consciously make sure that you are spending extra time, quality time with the siblings, and that you're making sure that their needs are being met. And it could just be, let's go for a 15-minute walk, Mm -hmm. right? Let's do 15 minutes for a child or adolescent is can seem like a long time, right? It might be that, you know, we're going to have, we're going to have a date night with just you and the other parent's going to, going to stay home. What do you want to do? They can get you know, is there something them? we can do? Something special for them, right. you know? And also, it's really important, like I said, to make sure that you try to kind of separate them from, you know, the, their siblings' OCD. You don't have to be the one to take care of it. That's up to them, and that's up to us, right? You may see siblings in conflict because of that. And again, authoritative parenting principles and practices can help you with that. And to, to add on to the supporting siblings, to that point about when when OCD attaches itself to a particular mm-hmm. sibling and that that sibling then becomes uh, a hostage to those yes. symptoms, um, it's... It's it's somewhat natural for that for that um, brother or sister to then you know feel like the, you know they, they don't want to be a problem they don't want to cause their sibling to feel like they're in more pain so they kind of go along with it or you know they 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 do the thing under duress yes. uh, some of the advice that I would give in terms of as we are reducing our accommodation for that uh, f- reducing our accommodation for the OCD part part of that is also for that that that's that sibling that brother or sister to give themselves permission to progressively back off of the things that they're doing and it's it it, it can be really hard and there needs to be then support for that sibling to say you it feels it may feel like you're doing something wrong or mean or bad but you're not ultimately this is going to be helpful for that brother or sister who's experiencing those symptoms so right the you know checking in with that kiddo about you know how they're feeling how they're doing being that they're the you know uh, unrequested inadvertent target of ocd so trying to support that kid in that way i can't tell you how many phone calls i've got from parents where they say what do we do how do we do this that you know they're 
they require them to get dressed in a certain room. They can't be in the same room with them. They have right. to wear, uh, they, they have to act in a certain way or they can't say certain things. It's right. that this kid is entitled to, the kid without the OCD is entitled to live their life as they right. would like. Right. And we're trying to make an environment where OCD cannot survive. Right. And, you know, that goes back to educating yourself. When you educate yourself and you learn about the OCD cycle and you educate, you know, your child or adolescent sibling about OCD and the OCD cycle, you learn that it feels now it feels intuitive. I'm going to help them with this behavior because then they'll have some relief. But the relief is only temporary. And what it does is it feeds the OCD. It gives the bully cookies. Right. Right. And what you said about pulling it away slowly is true. It's it's really important. And again, having, you know, regardless of how your child or adolescent with OCD feels, there's expectations for how they're going to behave. So that includes protecting their sibling. If the siblings are being attacked or yelled at or name called because they have done something that triggers OCD, you know, that, that needs to be addressed, right? I understand that you're really overwhelmed and frustrated and that was triggering, but it's not okay to respond by attacking your sibling. And then that sibling feels protected and that sibling feels safe, right? right. It's right. really, really important. Which feels like a natural progression into point seven. It does. Hmm. You'd like to share what point seven is? Well, according to you, it's advocating for your child. So what does that yes. mean? What does that mean to advocate for your child and in what contexts ought we advocate? So I think it's important to advocate for your child with other people in their lives. So with family members and friends. Mm -hmm. You know, a diagnosis of OCD is private health information. So it's up to children, adolescents, and their parents to recognize who it is safe to share the diagnosis with. I've definitely had parents who have said, you know, the grandparents just don't believe in therapy. They don't believe that this is a real thing and they're never going to, and we can't change them. That might not be safe then to reach out to that person and explain it to them. But if there are people that are open to it and the child is okay with it, because sometimes there's a lot of shame around having a diagnosis of OCD. But my experience is that when you share it, people generally are very supportive and understanding and they just need to be educated about it. So you can advocate for your child by educating the important, educating friends, other family members and people in the school, in the school that they attend about OCD. You can also advocate in the school system for them to receive support. If they need a 504 plan because they're still working on their symptoms and they, particularly with those with academic OCD or who are doing rituals at school, they may need a little bit of support with a 504 plan, which is not an individual education plan, which is a higher bar. Also known it's, as an IEP. Yeah, an right. IEP. Uh, 504 is just a, a, a looser agreement with the school, usually through the school counselor, that, you know, we're going to give the child a little bit extra time to do this assignment. We are going to, um, you know, allow 
the child, you know, if they have academic OCD, they may be erasing and rewriting and not keeping up on a test, you know, not able to finish the test in time. So maybe they could go to another room for a test. You know, sometimes parents and children and adolescents with OCD are resistant to this because in my experience, they don't want to be seen as disabled or getting special attention. But at the same time, it, it can be disabling. So work with the teachers, work with the school counselor to support your child or adolescent with OCD in the school system. Make sure you talk to relatives, especially or caregivers, nannies, especially those who are helping care for your child about OCD and what's going on and teach them how to apply authoritative parenting principles to their care of your child or adolescent with OCD. I think that's all really important and it will reduce their shame. Let's name it. Let's reduce the shame around it. Right. 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 And to, to, yes. And to the, the, the point about getting extra time about in, in class or, or, or having um, some, some of the special, I'll just use this term, special needs met, that um, this is also supported through the Americans with Disabilities Act. So your child is entitled to have what what they would call, quote, reasonable accommodations. And that, yes, I know that term is is broad and ambiguous, but it's also intentionally broad and ambiguous. So it doesn't mean that that every child gets 10 minutes extra or that they, or whatever. It's that you and the school are going to work together to figure out how you can, you, you all can make some reasonable accommodations for your child as they're still working on their symptoms with a qualified therapist. Absolutely. To your point, OCD is considered as one of the protected disabilities under the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. It can be a disabling condition. And you led me beautifully, thank you, Kevin Foss, into point eight which is seek evidence-based treatment, seek evidence-based treatment. Um, For those of you who are regular listeners of the FearCast, I'm sure that you understand that mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure and response prevention is the evidence-based treatment for OCD in children and adolescents and adults. Decades of research have supported that. And the difficulty of finding that treatment is is multifaceted a there's a limited number of people who actually specialize in this as opposed to those who claim they specialize in it those who actually are trained to provide this evidence-based treatment cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure and response prevention and a mindfulness component B, within those practitioners, there are a limited number who work with children and adolescents. Within those practitioners who work with children and adolescents, there's a limited number who actually understand developmental stages, which is another issue I see with parents all the time, which is a lack of understanding of basic developmental stages, not ages, stages. What's normative cognitively at this stage? What's normative physically? What's normative emotionally? There's a wonderful series of books by Louise Bates Ames. They are very old school. And she goes through every year and just they're very slim volumes and gives you an an outline of, of normative development 
across domains. So she has your one-year-old, your two-year-old, your three-year-old, your four-year-old, all the way up to your 10 to 14-year-old. I love those books. They've been around forever, but those developmental norms don't change. And it's a very good primer for parents to understand developmental stages. So just throw that in there because I am a read about it and learn about it therapist and person. So it can be difficult. It can be expensive. It can be difficult to find a practitioner in your area who is trained. Yeah. Who's who's trained. Yeah. It's really difficult. You're absolutely right. Um, How many times have you had a client say to you, Kevin, but I was doing CBT. I did it for years and I am not better. Lots. Lots. Yeah. The first question I always ask when I hear that is what was your homework like? And what's the usual response you get if you ask that question? We did a lot of talking in session about kind of deep breathing and relaxation exercises. There wasn't a whole lot of homework. I hear a lot of that. Ding, 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 ding. So when I hear that, I say, well, you weren't really doing CBT. Because one of the hallmarks of CBT is that much of the work takes place outside of the office. And you're always given homework. The homework is going to be some of those relaxation exercises, mindfulness, building mindfulness practices, but also exposure and response prevention. Now, I don't want to denigrate talk therapy. I think talk therapists are awesome. I believe all therapists are in it to help people. It's just not an appropriate treatment for OCD. It's just not. And I think sometimes a talk therapist or psychodynamic or insight oriented therapist comes from a place of, well, I took a weekend workshop on cognitive behavioral therapy or I I, I learned about it in grad school, but they're not really applying the treatment protocol. Right. And talk therapy can sometimes exacerbate symptoms. Have you noticed that in your practice? Yes. It, um, uh, yes, when yeah. they're talking about the symptoms, it's, um, and I'll, I'll say some therapists, myself included, can sometimes get suckered into this sure. cycle. Um, so it's, you know, it's not magic necessarily, but it's, it's the, when there is a discussion about, let's say, so this is more for like, um, you know, You'll, you'll hear this a lot with HOCD and with existential OCDs, that they'll really get into the nitty-gritty, or a religious group as well. well more, also, okay, all OCD. But they'll get into the nitty-gritty of whether of, of OCD, talking about yeah. the legitimacy of the fear. Right. Now, we talk about that here on the podcast with um, uh, in, in regards to challenging one's thoughts and doing some alternative mm-hmm. thought record types of exercises. And, and yes, considering the legitimacy of the fears to a certain degree. But that can quickly become compulsive. And that type of process only is effective so long as it leads one into the action of taking the risk. Absolutely. It's, it's the, it's, if you were to go skydiving, there is a whole class before the skydiving about the safety and the processes and the protocols and the equipment and why things happen the way that they happen, the order that they happen um, to educate you as to showing you that the thing that you're about to do is safe in that it's incredibly dangerous, but it's safe in that you could die so that, so that you take that information and you go, all right, based on the pros and cons of this and what all these nerds are saying, am I willing to jump out of the plane? Right. It'd be talk therapy in this context to go with this very stretched analogy is basically only staying in the class and not jumping out of the plane. 
Right. So, and also, you know, if, if you're, if it's insight oriented and the thought is if we gain insight into why they're having these thoughts and feelings, then behavior will change. That doesn't really work that way with OCD because first of all, the only insight you need is you have OCD, strong genetic load, some environmental input as well. It's a combination just like any other mental health disorder of biology and environment. Right. There definitely is a strong genetic load. But what I always tell parents when they're going, oh, no, I gave this to my child. I was like, well, does your, did your kid have braces? Do they wear glasses? Are you beating yourself up for that? Because you gave them that as well. Right. And they're like, no, I don't even think about that. And it was like, okay, well, so you took a roll of the genetic dice and yes, there's a strong genetic load, but that doesn't mean that you beat yourself up for it or feel shame about it. Nor that they're screwed for the rest of their life. No, absolutely not. And I mean, it's going to sound strange, but I view OCD as a gift sometimes. Mm. You know, I have my own history of OCD. I had a very early childhood onset in a time when OCD, they didn't diagnose me. It wasn't even thought that kids could have it. And I went through years of psychodynamic talk therapy. And it was trying to gain insight into why I'm having these thoughts and feelings. And the answer was just, well, I have a medical condition called OCD that has to do with serotonin in my brain. It's not because, you know, for me, my mom was writing her dissertation. And I didn't feel like I got enough attention. That wasn't it. It, they, it was all these searching. And by the way, people with OCD are already trying to figure out stuff way too much and overthinking. So when you put them in talk therapy and they're trying to figure stuff out, figure stuff out, it can backfire. It can make symptoms worse. So again, I love talk therapists. I think they're doing wonderful work. It's just really not appropriate, the appropriate treatment for OCD. It's a different tool for a different time. Yes, right. exactly. Or for a different condition, yeah, right? Right. Exactly. Right. And, you know, a lot of parents get caught up. We won't go into it too much, but on exposure and response prevention, because to them, it feels counterintuitive. I'm going to expose my kid to what they're afraid of. Well, there's lots of ways to provide exposure. I'm sure you talk about it all the time on other FearCast episodes, but I would say you find the right practitioner and you trust that practitioner and a good practitioner will, when, when you're looking for a therapist, you can ask some questions. You can describe the symptoms. What kind of exposures would you apply to this? Do you use mindfulness skills? Really important. Do you, um, you know, what kind of cognitive tools do you use for a child? Because you have to adapt them because children who are pre-adolescent don't have what we call metacognition which is why they don't necessarily have to have insight to get the diagnosis because they are not able to think about their thinking, there you go. which is what metacognition is thinking yeah. about thinking. It sounds real fancy. It's just, it's, it's when you and I as adults think about our thoughts and it can make commentary and criticism on how we're thinking. Right. That's metacognition. Um, right. And uh, I, I think that you're making a, 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 such an important point that, that you as a parent can advocate, can ought to, Take yes. a take a, a active role when you're trying to find a therapist that even that that even a therapist who identifies themselves as an OCD specialist, they are going to be prepared for 
hearing questions like this. Um, and the IOCDF, I've, I've yeah. put this link up before, but I will try to add this to my um, list again of uh, or on the show notes, that they have a series of questions that a parent or a person can Perfect. ask to a potential provider um, that will help give them a, a clearer idea as to whether or not they are trained or prepared or understand OCD. There are going to be questions like, what treatment um protocols do you use or what treatment approaches? And the answer ought to be something like CBT, ERP, and mindfulness. Right. There should be, you can ask questions like, what percentage of your caseload is OCD? Yes. How many uh, uh, folks have you seen with OCD in, in, right. in your past? My, my answer where were to you that, trained? Where, where were you trained? Exactly. And I think that that's, um, and, and that's a really good point. You said, where can I find a really good therapist? Um, the, the IOCDF is a good place to start, yes. though that's certainly not going to be the only place that you can find a good therapist. When you're find, trying to find a therapist, Yes, looking at where they were trained, um, you know, there are, what is the IOCDF training program? What do they call it? Is it the Training Institute? Am I wrong? B, uh, the BTTI. Yes. Yeah, so yes, they, yes, they yes. have their own thing for folks who want to get trained, and you can go through the BTTI program. I did not go through the BTTI program, and so some folks might say, well, what does he know? And it's also because right. I've then, I've... I have sought out internships and training and, sp right. and specialization for for a very long time, and right. and when I when people ask me how much of my clientele is um, is OCD, my answer is a hundred percent. Right, and that's a really good point too because you know I went through having you know early, very early childhood onset of OCD and not learning, not finding the proper treatment until I was about 21. I, after grad school, I had the wonderful opportunity of, of being a therapist at UCLA's child and adolescent um, OCD intensive outpatient treatment program. And I have to admit, I went in there a little cocky. I've been in, the, I've been in through this protocol. I know exactly what's going on. Right. Not so much. Learning how to apply the protocol, in particular exposure and response prevention, is a skill and an art. And it took me months to feel comfortable applying with it. And I had been through the treatment protocol myself and, and very effectively, right? So it really, I can't, we can't underestimate how important rigorous training is. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be at one of these major universities. It could just be at a center that you know, you interned at, or, you know, we're earning your licensure hours at that knows what they're doing. It, it's, it's, don't give up. It's going to be a struggle. You know, um, if you know anyone in your life who child has had anxiety an anxiety disorder, phobia, or OCD, skin picking, hair pulling, which we call body focused, repetitive behaviors, BFRBs, generally OCD specialists also work in those uh, with those other disorders so ask around you know there, it, there's more kids and adolescents out there than people realize it's hidden but there's a lot you know people whose children are going through this or have gone through this and if for sure yeah and, and if you're if you're lucky enough to live in a, a city or country that has a, a, a gaggle of ocd therapists like you know any any major major city will have a bunch yeah, for sure but you know if you're in the middle of nowhere um if you can, f it, it, this is kind of a, you know the the 
one of the options. It's not necessarily the preferred, but you know, if you can't find someone and you can't do online therapy and you can't do all this stuff and you just feel like you're screwed, you know, finding a, a, a therapist who understands. So starting with a CBT therapist, if they're right. willing to go through a workbook with you and yes. they, they kind of treat it as training themselves as they're going through it with the training wheels on with you, you know what, that's going to be better than going to see you know, a, a, a generalist who, you know, and you, you, you know who they are on psych today yes. or psychology yes. today. They're the people who, when they, on the right side of the page, it says their specialties, they list everything that you could possibly think of. That's the sign. Yeah. That's going to be one of those folks is that when they specialize in everything, they specialize in nothing, nothing. So nobody can treat mood disorders and, and autism and anxiety disorders and Addiction. oppositional and defiant disorders and depression and right. everything under right. the sun. It's right. just not a good sign because right. you wouldn't go to a doctor who says, I do podiatry and gastroenterology and, you know, oncology and yeah, ne- neurology and right. cardiology. Right. right. So anyways, and we're, we're not we're not here to crap all over some of those therapists. Some of them are probably no. great. But it's that, you know, if if you need to start with one of those folks because insurance is, you know, what you can do, great. Yes. It's better. It, Teach them. It, it, it's, I, oh, I feel like I'm kicking myself for saying this. I might edit this out. I might not. Um, it's It might be better than nothing. Yes. But nothing might Something be better, is than, better than bad than therapy, too. So Yes. Anyways. Yes. You're right. Something is better than nothing, but nothing is, might be better than bad right. therapy. And the relationship between you and the therapist is going to be paramount. So, um, yes. Um, anyways, we could... Point nine. Uh, point, point nine. I was going to say, we could do a whole episode on this. I did. I did a whole episode on how to find a therapist. So if you're interested, it's going to be within the first 10 to 12. Awesome. Go find it. Um, do that now. All right. Um, point nine. We're almost at point 10, everybody. We're going to. We're, gonna we're get, almost there. We're going to get there together, everybody. We will. Point we'll do nine. It. Go make it happen. Learn about medication before dismissing it. We're talking a lot about the evidence-based treatment. The evidence-based treatment is a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy with exposure and response prevention and preferably mindfulness and medication, most of which are SSRIs and one tricyclic that's been well-studied. There's eight medications. You can find the list on the IOCDF website that have been well-studied in children and adolescents to manage OCD. Now, as a CBT therapist, unless I see a kid come in who's really, really severely depressed or super severe, I do not say, I think you should consult with a psychiatrist right away. I generally say, let's try CBT first. It, it's, it's not, it's outside of my scope of practice and competence to advise that you should take medication, but... If a child or an adolescent is having a difficult time accessing the treatment protocol, if we can't get their anxiety down, it's worth considering consulting with a psychiatrist. Sometimes parents, based on a lot of misinformation, are very, very resistant to trying psychotropic medication. And I use the medical example again. I say, if you, if your child had diabetes or your child had asthma or child had hypothyroidism or some other medical condition that required prescription medication as a treatment, would you be opposed to it? Generally, no. Right? Generally, they would 
take that treatment. The other thing to understand is that consulting with an OCD specialist who is a psychiatrist, because that's really important. You really want to find a psychiatrist who specializes in OCD because they're going to understand the difference in dosages. They're going to understand how to apply the correct medication and how to titrate it up slowly. Or the correct combination it doesn't mean of medications. What were you saying? Or the correct Sorry. combination of medications. Exactly. That doesn't mean that you have to take their advice and put your child on medication, but you can at the very least learn about it from an expert and make an informed decision rather than, you know, a lot of the things I hear are, it's going to change our personality. They're going to become addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are some of the most you know. common. I, I was I was thinking about this. Some of the most common objections I hear from parents is, um, you know, I, I I don't want one. I don't want them to become addicted to it or reliant yes. on it. Is number one. Exactly. I also hear I I don't want them on a chemical at such a tender age Young in their age. development, um, right. which I, I you know I, I certainly understand. Um, a lot of folks are going to be concerned about the potential side effects uh, of, yes. of medication, and 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 to to that point with all of those, I say, yeah, those are all concerns, and I totally totally get it. It's it's a scary thing, and to to think you know, I don't I don't know the science of this medication, but let's be honest, we don't know how our car works really. Right. And right. we get in our car. You're listening to your. You're listening to this episode on a on a phone or a an iPod. Maybe um, you're listening right. to it on something. You don't know how that an thing iPod. works, right? Yes. I could have said their tape player, but I didn't. Eight track. Eight track. Right. So it's that we we don't know how a lot of those things work, but we trust those folks who are trained in this to be able to do it. Right. And and right. for all those concerns bring those up with a psychiatrist because one i mean especially with the side effects most folks are more concerned about the side effects and not as concerned with the other effects right the 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 intended positive yeah and the other thing along those lines is that you know (laughs) i do sometimes have parents who are very resistant to psychotropic medication but then they say yeah but do you know anything about cbd oil or about st john's wort or about and i say what about essential uh, oils right essential how about, oils how about crystals? and i said <laughs> what how about crystals crystals can i put a okay. uh can i wrap them in, in a mandala <laughs> all right i'm just going too far sorry go go ahead make your point wrap them in a mandala so my point is is that a do not, I don't agree with giving a child or anyone a supplement without talking to a medical practitioner because they're not regulated in the same way that prescription medication is. They're not regulated by the FDA. In terms of supplements, you don't know what you're necessarily getting with that supplement. And barring some limited research on inositol, I've not read anything about anything else that can help with OCD. And even inositol, it's very limited what the research shows, you know? I mean, it shows possibly from what I've read, unless there's new research studies I haven't read, but, and I, again, I'm not advocating that I am a therapist. I am not a medical doctor. I'm not saying go take inositol or go take an SSRI. I'm saying get the proper information from the specialist, right? And so there is no evidence yet that any other supplements work to help OCD. Right. And 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 no disrespect to to Nature Mama 75 on Pinterest 
or whoever else is out there uh, who claims to know what they're talking about. Um, it, talk to talk to a real doctor if we're dealing with real things. So right. it, medication is going to be a real thing. And by the way, I, 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 I'm also on board with you. Uh, I, you and I share the same uh, view of medication in terms of OCD treatment is, is that it's one, it's not magic Two, it's, it's a, it's one of the tools that you're, that you can use that are going to help. Um, possibly. All, yeah. Po- possibly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, if you can do treatment without it, cool. If you want to awesome. do it and have it help. Cool. Right. There, are, there are few in far cases where I've said you really need to talk to a psychiatrist Absolutely. It's rare, but it does happen. And it's even happened to me on initial consultation where your child is suicidal. Right. You really should right. consult with a psychiatrist. And, and furthermore, and, and this, this will be my last point, unless you want to keep, keep going on this one, no. is that there, there is no weakness in, in taking medication. We're not saying we've given no. up, and we're not saying that your child is too broken or more broken because no. of, of their taking medication. If someone built a house and they use power tools, would you say that it's less of a house or that that, that builder was weak? No. Instead of just using a, hand, you know, hand tools. an old school hand tool? An all, no, absolutely no. not. Yeah, right. Absolutely not. Exactly. You can do And it, it has to do with the chemical imbalance in your brain, right? Right. Right. Exactly. So, so the, that kind of goes back to some of the biases, but, um, you know, I, I think the main point here it would be... Um, slow and steady, learn some information, talk to some trained professionals in it. Right. You don't have to jump on board right now. You don't have to no. never jump on board. It's that this is one of the tools along the way that can help. Right. Like you and are don't listening. dismiss it. Yeah. Right. You're listening what we to think, this. Sorry. Po- yeah. The, the, this, this parent is listening to this podcast right now in order to gather information. We'll just keep gathering information, everybody. Yeah. So absolutely. So I point ten. Point ten. We made it, everybody, to point ten. Oh my and gosh! I, and goodness I'm, gracious. Goodness gracious, indeed. I really like this point. Lay this is me. the best one, right? That's why it's number ten. Mm-hmm. You ready? I'm ready. Have hope. hope. Yay! Have hope. Effective treatment works. It. it if you, if your child has to have a mental health condition, this is going to sound very strange, but this is the one that you should have. This is the one to have. This is the one to have. Yeah. Because it's highly treatable and early intervention is highly impactful. So children's brains are like wet clay. They are still able to change not just the functioning of their brain, but also the structure of their brain, particularly during adolescence. Once you're 25, around 25, you can make your brain work more efficiently, but you can make it messages be sent more effectively, but you can't change the structure anymore. Before that age, you can actually change the structure of your brain. It's super powerful. And we have evidence of this. We have evidence of OCD brains looking different after treatment rewiring their brains and brain, brain it, lock for, for anyone who's interested the classic ocd book brain lock yes. is going to have um is probably the first if not the the, the first i think I it think was the, so. the first and biggest study with the uh, um fmris on this and a, a lot of the images that you'll see are probably came from that study yes that showed metabolic the imaging of the brain right right 
So it's actually, I had a PET scan, which is not really used for diagnosis, but they looked at what my brain looked like. And it looked like one of the brain brains. And I believe it looks, it has looked completely different for decades now because I had effective treatment. The reason I also say have hope is because OCD can be a gift. I know that that seems very strange, but that which doesn't kill us makes us stronger. And if not for suffering with OCD, perhaps if your child is suffering with OCD, perhaps in the future, that will lead them to have a greater capacity for joy. OCD brings with it conscientiousness, detail-oriented. If you can clear out the urges to compulse and the anxiety, those are good things. Those are positive things. This is what right? I call the OCD superpower. Superpower, capacity for empathy. If you've suffered, you understand the suffering of others. Capacity for joy. If you've been low, contentment and joy can be much stronger. So I absolutely, I see it all the time. When I treat kids with OCD and adolescents with OCD, this is why I love it. We start working on the exposures, working on the hierarchy of compulsions, and their symptoms just start shedding, just falling away. I see that more often with kids and adolescents than with adults because their brains are like wet clay. They're very plastic. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely possible for your child to have a normal, happy, healthy, productive life. And that's experienced by many, many, many people with OCD. And I personally view it as a gift. It led me to my calling. It gave me all those great things that I've just described. And it's there. Just have hope, have hope, have hope. There is hope to be had. Right. And um, uh, researcher and therapist Jonathan Grayson has this point that um, I, 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 regular listeners have probably heard me say this, but I, I love this point. It's that folks who go through this process are Better. This might not be the term that he uses. The folks who go through this process are better than regular people in that they are better able to manage stress and anxiety and difficulties and obstacles along the way than folks who don't go through this. Because what are we talking about entirely in treatment right. is accepting uncertainty, being flexible, tolerating right. uh, difficult emotional uh, states, being f- more focused on our goals and values and living in accordance with yes. those despite our thoughts and feelings. And folks who can deal with that deal with those stressors are going to be more resilient in their everyday life are going to be able to manage their stress and difficulties at work in relationships better than the average joe and i i've seen that during the pandemic is folks who a lot of my clients have been dealing with this so much better because they go i don't know what's going to happen whereas what the rest of the world is losing their ever loving mind yes all the time Absolutely. They're used to to learning how to manage uncertainty because they've been trained how to manage uncertainty. Right. Which is, and you know, this might sound a little cynical, but I have a belief that you cannot get through childhood unscathed. You can't. Something's going to happen. It's, something's going to happen. Even if in, in the rare case that you have a super, super highly, highly, highly functional family system and everything's great and there's financial resources and everything's wonderful something's going to happen there's going to be bullying there's going to be a loss there's going to be something so you can't get through childhood unscathed but if ocd is the thing that is difficult for you in childhood you know i want your parents to have hope that you can learn to manage it and that those skills that you use to learn to manage it 
are going to be skills. The beauty of CBT, right, Kevin, those skills can be applied to many, many things. Exactly. Right. So OCD is workable. It's totally workable and you can rewire your brain and you can live a very happy, healthy, productive life. Right. Even with OCD. Exactly. Yes. Yay. We made it. That was a lot. That was a lot. It's a lot of stuff. It's a good list. It's a good list. So, uh, so is there anything else that you'd want to add to this list? I mean, I know we've gone through a whole bunch of everything. Is there anything else oh you want to add to a parent or to, to, get, to help a parent understand this or any final thoughts before we sign off today? Um, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. You're awesome. Of course. I miss you at staff meetings. Just going to say it. <laughs> and, 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 um, and I miss staff meetings. Well, I don't know. (laughs) I miss your humor. Um, But it's okay. We're still in touch. Um, So other than thank you so much for having me. No, I mean, I just, I just want to reiterate, you know, educate, educate yourself. Education is key and have hope. I think that those are the most, two of the most important points. You know, I, I am very much a, you know, learn about something through reading about it. I know not everybody is like that. I, I, I frequently am saying, read this book, read this book, read this book to clients or parents, and they don't. You don't have to read a book to learn about it. There's podcasts. There's like the fear cast. Right. There's um, audio books. Mm-hmm. There are other ways to learn about it. And, you know? and that's a good point. I mean, a lot of these books are, that you're talking about, and, and again, um, they, they'll be available at the, on the show notes of this episode. Um, a lot of the books that you can get are probably through your local library. Um, I listen mm-hmm. to the majority of my books on tape, um, books on tape, audiobooks, um, through a program called Overdrive, and it just connects yeah. to my local library. And I go online, see what's available. I might go on a wait list for a couple of weeks, and then I'll be able to get it, and, and I listen to, it, listen to it on my phone, and it's completely free. So yes. um, there, there's going to be that. Don't underestimate the libraries once they open up. Um, universities Thank may you for have some resources. To libraries. That makes me so happy. Real Under libraries still exist. Pandemic. Oh, yeah. I love it. Under non-pandemic circumstances, I go to the, my local library once a week. Right. Um, used books, they're going to be out there. You can you can yep. get probably the vast majority of the books that Elaine is mentioning used on Amazon, and yep. they're going to cost you five to eight bucks. Um, and uh, Yes. And there's one more book I should mention, which is a book by Don Hubner for little kids. It's a workbook. It's called What to Do When Your Brain Gets Stuck. I love that book. It's so good. Yeah. And she has other ones, what to do when you worry too much, Mm -hmm. grumble, as does Tamara Chansky. She has freeing your child from anxiety, freeing your child from negative thinking. Those are all great books. And as part part of that series, they also have books for, you know, anger management or sadness or fear. Yes, um, exactly. So um, those are all worth getting. And I also... I also really like them because for for me, because it puts it into very simple terms, because a lot of the books that are out there, I'm rolling my eyes, y'all can't see this. um, They, the authors want to make themselves sound super duper smart and they are, but sometimes information can get lost in the super duper smartiness of it. Um, They're not accessible. They're not accessible. That's, that's the, that's the clear way to say it. Thank you. Yeah. So I also really love a book called the teenage brain. I teach, I 
I use it when I teach my adolescent development course at, at Cal State Northridge. It's um, that is a very unique cognitive development period. And um, the teenage brain lays it out in a non smarty pants kind of way. Mm-hmm. It's written by a, a neurologist, but or neuroscientist slash neurologist, but it's, it really helps you understand the brain changes that are quite significant during adolescence. Awesome. I could go on and on. I, you could, you could. And this, this episode is probably officially the longest one I've ever done. So oh my um, goodness. I will save the rest of the listeners or the, the, the listeners for those of you who made it this far um, more, more listening, but um, Elena, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. And thank you for sharing your expertise, your knowledge and your passion for um, child and adolescent OCD treatment. So um, I, uh, I will again, try to get that list from you for all those um, resources and references. And um, is there, is if folks have questions for you, how can they contact you or what's going to be a good way for them to contact you? Um, so I don't know. What do you think? Should I just give them my, my work email? What do you think? Um, why do you do this? If y'all have questions, you can email me here at the Fearcast. You can email me at questions at fearcast.com and I will forward that to uh, Elena. Uh, since, um, since you never know what email address um, you might have at any point in life, but uh, I will try to forward that Perfect. to her at any time. That's a great time. idea. Yeah, and feel free to reach out. I My calling in life is to help children, adolescents, with OCD and their parents and their families. So absolutely. I, anyone who's ever worked for me knows, give me a call if you need a consult and I'm more than happy to, you know, reach back out. Perfect. Okay. Right, That's a strange way to say it. Reach back out, respond. There you go. <laughs> it worked. I think, I think everyone thank knows what we're talking about. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. Awesome. And thanks for listeners who stuck it out through this very long podcast. Yes, absolutely. So, all right. Elena, have a great day and thanks so much. You too. Okay, everybody, we made it. We made it through this episode. This is episode 48 of the Fearcast. Thank you so much for getting all the way through. As I mentioned at the very beginning, if you have questions about the resources and and books that uh, Elena had mentioned, feel free to go over to fearcastpodcast.com. I'll have a list there that you can check out. If you have questions, as I mentioned, uh, for her specifically, you can message me over questions at fearcastpodcast.com and I'll forward those to her. Lastly, if you have questions for her for a future episode that you would like her to answer, um, you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com, go to submit a question there. All right, everybody, please remember the Fearcast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have any questions about treatment or need any help getting into your own treatment or need uh, some uh, further assistance and guidance, go to fearcastpodcast.com and there's going to be some links there that might be able to help you along the way. All right, everybody, until next time, as always, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.